Welcome to the fifth episode of the Rise and Fall of the Sikh Empire. I'm your host, Sunar Chopra. As the young king of Afghanistan, Shah Zaman invades the Punjab. Ranjit Singh seizes the opportunity and makes his mark as the only Sikh chief willing to stand up to Afghan power. Begum Samru faces a rebellion by the Sardana Brigade and has to be rescued by George Thomas. Ranjit Singh truly comes into his own by shaking off the control of his key advisors and taking the reins of his fiefdom in his own hands. As his ambition grows, he marries a second time, forging an alliance with the House of Nakais. ਕਣਾ ਇੱਕ ਗਬਰੂ ਘੋੜੇ ਤੇ ਅਸਵਾਰ ਅੱਗੇ ਦਿਸਦੇ ਨਸਿਆ ਹੈ ਇੱਕ ਬਲੀ ਸ਼ਿਕਾਰ ਮਸ ਗਬਰੂ ਦੀ ਕਿਰ ਰਹੀ ਜੁੱਸਾ ਜਿਵੇਂ ਫੁਲਾਦ ਰਣ ਖੇਡਾਂ ਦਾ ਜਾਪਦਾ ਸਮਰਥਕ ਉਸਤਾਦ ਮਥਿਓਂ ਮੁੜਕਾ ਚੋਰਿਆ ਨੈਣ ਸੁੱਟਣ ਚੰਗਿਆੜ ਅਚਨ ਚੇਤੀ ਤੱਕਦਾ ਨੇੜੇ ਵੈਰੀ ਧਾੜ Look, look, here's a hero mounted on his steed runs away from him his prey he follows with great speed his glory devastating his body made of steel his bearing and demeanor a warrior ideal perspiration on his brow and his eyes rain fire anywhere he turns his gaze enemies filled with ire things were not going well in sarthana the begum's aristocratic new husband Levasso was openly disdainful of his brother European officers who he considered boorish. The rank and file hated Levasso as well, but were devoted to the other officers. When a Belgian officer named Legois tried to dissuade Begum Sambru from attacking Jajer, which was under the control of George Thomas, he was humiliated and placed under the command of a junior officer. The Sardana Brigade, renowned for its discipline, mutinied, and two of her battalions marched to Delhi under the command of Legois and sought out Louis Balthazar, also known as Zafareb Khan, a son of the late Sombrays by his senior wife, Bari Bibi. Zafareb Khan, who lived an indolent life in Delhi, was persuaded to take control of the Sardana Brigade as its new commander. As Zafareb Khan marched to Sardana intending to arrest the Begum and her husband, 
they managed to escape. The Begum's palanquin, with Levasso armed with two pistols riding by her side, was making for Anupshaher, the nearest British outpost, which was eighty miles away. They had barely travelled four miles when a pursuing cavalry detachment from Sultana caught up with them at Kirva. In the skirmish that ensued, Levasso was shot dead. The Begum was dragged in chains back to Sirthana, where she was stripped of her possessions, tied to a gun carriage, and denied food and water. Levasso's corpse was treated with every imaginable form of indignity by the jubilant mutineers. The Begum, too, would have been put to death, but for the intervention of Colonel Salur, one of the commanders of the Sardana Brigade. As she started her life in captivity, Begum Samru tried to get her attendants and Colonel Salur to send word to the only man who might be prompted to come to her aid, her former lover, George Thomas. December 1795, Shah Zaman made his second attempt to conquer the Punjab, which had been ceded to the Afghans by the Mughals, but was really in the hands of the Sikhs. The Afghan army crossed the Indus, and the king set up camp at Hassan Abdal, sending his general Ahmed Khan Shahanchi Bashi east to take Rothas, a fort on the Jhelum that was under the control of the Shukarchakyas. Ranjit Singh retreated, choosing not to fight, and took a defensive position at Bind Dadan Khan on the south bank of the Jhelum. The Marathas were still the most powerful force in northern India, and Ranjit Singh sent urgent messages to Dalatrao Sindhya, who had succeeded the powerful Madhaji Sindhya as the regent of the Mughal Empire, suggesting that they join hands to repel the Afghan invaders. There was no reply from the Marathas, but as Ranjit Singh was readying for a confrontation, Shah Zaman got news of a rebellion in Herat, where his older brother Mahmud, who had been pardoned earlier, was governor. The Afghan king ordered his forces to retreat and arrived in Peshawar in February. The Marathas had been in disarray during Shah Zaman's short expedition. The Peshwa, Madhavrao II, had passed away in October, and there was much intrigue in the Maratha court as multiple chiefs jockeyed to place their chosen successor on the throne. The period of uncertainty would continue for a year before Baji Rao II would be confirmed as the new Peshwa. They suffered another huge setback in early 1796 when General Benoit de Boyne, the architect of so many of Mataji Sindhya's military victories, retired. 
his successor, General Perron, was nowhere near as brilliant as the man he replaced, even though he had inherited the crack force that Du Bois had built over the years. Gopal Bhau, Madhaji's supreme commander in the north, had been replaced by Lakshman Ananth Lard, popularly known as Lakwa Dada, a brilliant commander and brave warrior who had also served under Madhaji. The infighting at the court, the mismanagement of the lands they controlled, and their inability to collect revenue had weakened the Marathas tremendously, and even if they had wanted to respond favorably to Ranjit Singh's offer of an alliance, they simply did not have the means to engage the Afghans. The threat of Shah Zaman's second invasion had receded, but it was clear that he was not likely to give up his designs on the Punjab easily. To the beating of drums, a grand wedding procession left the Shukarchakya compound in Gujaramwala. At its head rode Ranjit Singh, a sturdy young man of 16, ringed by the finest horsemen of the Shukarchakya cavalry, dressed in their festive best. Behind him rode his great-uncle, Sardar Dal Singh of Akalgarh, who was going to stand in for Mahasingh at the wedding. Divan Lakhpatrai, the chief administrator of the Shukarchakya missile, who always liked to keep some distance between himself and Dalsing, rode behind the royal carriage of Rajkor and her attendants. In a cart that followed Rajkor's carriage sat Misar Bastiram, the keeper of the Shukarchakya treasury, and Misar Laikram, another faithful servant of the late Mahasings. Several carts that followed carried the rest of the Shukachakya household and gifts for the young bride and her family. The leisurely journey from Gujaramwala to Batala took several days, and the wedding party halted at Amritsar so that the groom and his mother could pay their respects at the Sri Harmandar Sahib. Several kinsmen and feudatory chiefs joined the wedding procession as it made its way to the bride's home. From the east, Raj Kaur's brother, Raja Bhag Singh of Jeend, was traveling to Batala as well, having left several days earlier with his family and a large detachment of horsemen to attend his nephew's wedding. The two parties met outside Batala and then proceeded to the seat of the Kanhiyas, which the late Jaising Kanhiya had managed to wrest back from the Ramgariyas a few years earlier. Sadakor had spared no expense, and the guests were entertained lavishly in advance of the wedding, which was to be held the following night. The evening's festivities had concluded, and the guests had retired for the night, Mehtab Kaur, who had been waiting for her wedding day with a mixture of excitement and apprehension, was in her mother's chambers, pretending to be asleep, as Sadakaur chatted in a low voice 
with Bancor and Moncor, her closest confidants. What were you thinking, Sadakor? She heard Bancor murmur. Our daughter is as beautiful as the moon. She truly has the bearing of a queen. I had heard that Mahasingh's son was not particularly good-looking, but I was unprepared for what I saw today. He is short. He is blind in one eye. His face is pockmarked. We could have done so much better. Be quiet, hissed Sadakor, casting a worried glance at her daughter, who seemed to be fast asleep. Moncor decided to weigh in as well. And how can you forget what the Shukarchakiyas did to our clan? Mahasingh was responsible for Sardar Gurbakhsingh's death, was he not? Did he not ask Jasasingh Ramgadiya to cross the Satlaj and come back from the Malva? Did he not disrespect Sardar Jasingh and break his heart, despite everything that Papaji had done for him? How can our child ever be happy with the man whose father was the cause of our clan's ruin? There are so many fine young men among the Bhangis and the Nakais and the Aluvalias. You should have looked for a princeling worthy of our daughter, but you chose him? You mean well, both of you, said Sadakor in an even voice. But you do not see what I see. The blood of both Sardar Chadat Singh Shukarchakya and Raja Gajpat Singh flows through the boy's veins. He is brave, and there is nobody in his clan to challenge him. The fortunes of the Shukarchakyas have been rising, even as ours have been declining. Your eyes see a short, one-eyed boy with a scarred face. But do you know what I saw when he rode up to our gates today? I saw a king. Mehtab Kaur held her breath until her mother and her confidants had left the room, and then she burst into tears, her body racked by heaving sobs. You are wrong, mother, and Thankor and Mankor are right. He will never make me happy. I just know it. It was one of the grandest weddings that all the important Sikh chiefs gathered at Batala had ever seen. While they all marveled at the pomp and pageantry, in their hearts there was a question. The powerful Shukarchakya and Kanhiya missiles were now formally united by bonds of marriage. What did that mean for their clans? After the exchange of expensive gifts, and the bequeathing of largesse upon the needy, the young Ranjit Singh left Batala for Gujaranwala with his bride, whose beauty and noble bearing would never be forgotten by anyone who attended the wedding. In July 1796, an emissary from Shah Zaman arrived in Delhi and sought an audience with the Emperor Shah Alam. 
The Afghan king also sent a message to Dalatrao Sindhya, the emperor's regent, professing friendship and requesting that the Marathas stay neutral when he attacked the Punjab. He promised that his conquests would be confined to territories controlled by the Sikhs and that the crown lands of the Mughal court administered by the Marathas would be left unmolested. The Afghan agent also met with two emissaries of Tipu Sultan who arrived disguised as dervishes. At the same time, he also sent emissaries to the Sikh chiefs, asking them to guarantee safe passage for his army as he marched upon Delhi. The wily Sikh chiefs replied that they would agree if they were guaranteed a sizable share of the plunder that Shah Zaman would realize from Delhi. When his agents arrived in Gujranwala demanding tribute and allegiance from Ranjit Singh, they were told that the young chief would present his tribute on the battlefield. Realizing that an invasion of India was possible only if his brother Mahmud did not raise the standard of rebellion again, Shah Zaman sent his brother Shujal Mulk and one of his ministers, Sher Muhammad Khan, to Herat to negotiate with Mahmud and ensure that he would not cause trouble while the king was campaigning. The Afghan general Ahmad Shah Shahanchibashi was sent to Peshawar to ready the army and a command was sent to Mir Fateh Ali, the governor of Sindh, to provide 10,000 men. The lords of Baluchistan, Bahawalpur, Derajat, Kandahar and Multan were all commanded to send men as well. Excited at the prospect of a lucrative Indian expedition, fighters started streaming into Peshawar and by September a force 80,000 strong had been assembled with 63 guns and 700 jamburaks, light artillery pieces mounted on camels. The king of Afghanistan was ready to go to war again. Begum Samru had been in captivity for nine months, but her spirit was unbroken. She did manage to get word to George Thomas, who, moved by her plight, especially as the hated Levasso was dead, had been exploring ways and means of freeing her from captivity. First, he offered Jagubapu, the Maratha general stationed at Saharanpur, 120,000 rupees in return for his support. The Marathas did not join in the enterprise, but offered George Thomas their tacit blessing, prompting him to stealthily march towards Sardhana in July 1796 with his brigade. He was joined by some soldiers of the Sardhana brigade who had secretly stayed loyal to the Begum. Thomas started reaching out to the commanders of the Sardhana Brigade, pointing out that Sardhana could remain a state only under Begum Samru's rule. Zafarab Khan, known for his debauchery and ineptitude, would never be confirmed as Nawab of Sardhana by the Mughal court, which made the future of the entire brigade uncertain. Further, he claimed to be acting in the name of the Marathas, 
the real power behind the Mughal throne. The Begum was restored to power briefly, but overthrown and imprisoned again as the Sardana Brigade splintered. The time for direct action had come, and George Thomas stormed Sardana with a small force of 50 horsemen and 400 infantrymen advancing cautiously behind them, fearing that the raiding party was merely the vanguard of a vast Maratha army, the Sardana Brigade surrendered to George Thomas. The Begum was restored to the throne of Sardana, and thirty of her European officers, led by Colonel Salure, signed an oath of allegiance, swearing in the name of God and Jesus Christ that they would forever be faithful to the Begum. Zafareb Khan was sent to Delhi as a prisoner, and Colonel Salur was placed in charge of the Sardana Brigade. November 1796, Shah Zaman left Peshawar and arrived at Atak, ordering a bridge of boats to be built. An advance party under the command of Wazir Sher Muhammad Khan and Ahmad Khan Shahanchi Bashi crossed the river and skirmished with Milka Singh, a Bhangi chief from Rawalpindi, as they advanced towards Hassan Abdal. Both sides suffered losses, and Milka Singh fled to the fort of Rohtas as the Afghan detachment retreated to Atak. Shah Zaman had crossed the Indus with several specific objectives. First and foremost, he was determined to reassert Afghan control over the Punjab and bring the Sikhs to heel, willing to let them rule as his vassals, but completely opposed to their independent control of the province. The replenishing of the treasury of Kabul from the rich plunder that India had always yielded was another important goal. He was also determined to rescue the Emperor Shah Alam from Maratha domination and he intended to strengthen the ties between their two houses by marrying the daughter of Prince Akbar Shah, the Emperor's son and heir apparent. Shah Alam was much pleased at the news of the Afghan advance, and he sent emissaries to Shah Zaman, expressing his support and offering to pay the Afghans 50,000 rupees for every march and half the sum for every halt. John Shore, the British Governor-General, was eyeing Shah Zaman's movements carefully as well. Even though British interests at the time stretched to the borders of Awadh and did not include Delhi, an Afghan advance to the Mughal capital would be worrisome. However, he was certain that even though the Sikh chiefs were disunited, they would band together as they always had in the face of an Afghan threat and impede Shah Zaman's progress through the Punjab. His only fear was that Shah Zaman might offer the Sikhs incentives to let him pass unmolested, and to prepare for that possibility, 
he commanded Asafuddallah, the Nawab of Awadh, to ready his troops in support of the British forces. He also wrote to Dalatrao Sindhya, requesting him to go to the defense of Delhi with the support of the British forces, which were ordered to Kanauj. The Maratha court continued to be in disarray as Shah Zaman was advancing into the Punjab. Dalatrao Sindhya, who lacked the sagacity of the great Mataji Sindhya, was an immature and self-indulgent youth who was prone to being manipulated by unscrupulous advisers. He was helped initially by the steadying hand of Mataji's widows, Bhagirathi Bai, Yamuna Bai, Lakshmi Bai, and Kesari Bai. However, he came under the thrall of the rascally Sharza Rao Ghatge, who poisoned his mind against his own chief minister, Baloba Tatya, who was the mentor of the Maratha commander in the north, Lakwa Dada. Sharza Rao convinced Dalat Rao that if he dismissed Baloba, he would be able to raise large sums of money from the territories under his control. Baloba Tatya was arrested, and when Lakwa Dada heard of his fall, he sent his family to Avad and started proceeding towards British territory himself to seek asylum. When Dalatrao Sindhya got word of Shah Zaman's progress, panic set in. In the absence of Lakwadada, the Afghans would easily take his dominions in the north and break the back of Maratha power once again. He sent urgent letters to Lakwadada asking him to resume his command and ordered several chiefs to escort him back from asylum with full honors. Lakwadada, being too disciplined a soldier to ignore the summons, decided to return to his post, but continued to be suspicious of his master's intentions. He did not engage fully, and for the time being, the Marathas in the north were led by one of his fellow generals, Jagubapu, as the Afghans advance further. Muslim chiefs from Punjab all the way to Rohilkhand were elated at the prospect of an Afghan invasion. Jalal Bhatti and Nizamuddin of Kasur, both gleefully ready to join the Afghan expedition, and the Rohila chiefs started dreaming of usurping the territories of Awadh, hoping that the turmoil caused by the invasion might create an opportunity for them. The Sikh chiefs across the Satluj did not seem to be particularly alarmed as they knew that their brethren in the Trans-Satluj region were almost certainly going to fight the Afghans. Raja Sahib Singh of Patiala, who was squarely focused on his own interests, was in friendly correspondence with Shah Zaman, and the British wondered if he would stay neutral in the impending conflict or if he would defect to the Afghan side and turn on his fellow Sikhs. The threat was much more real to the trans-Satluj Sikhs, whose territories lay in the path of the Afghans. The westernmost outpost of Sarai Kali, seven miles from Hassan Abdal, was commanded by Ram Singh. Rawalpindi was under the command of Milka Singh. Mohar Singh was in command of Rohtas, and Saib Singh Bhangi was at his citadel at Gujarat. Dal Singh was at Ahmednagar, not too far from Akalgarh, 
and Ranjit Singh waited at Rasulnagar. Lahore was under the command of Lena Singh Pangi and Amritsar was commanded by Gulab Singh Pangi. Saib Singh Pangi had sent his household to Islamnagar and from there to the safety of the hills, as had Ranjit Singh and his great uncle Sardar Dal Singh. Sikhs all over the Punjab were abandoning their homes, apprehensive of the Afghan advance, which brought back memories of the depredations of Shah Zaman's grandfather, Ahmed Shah Durrani. Lena Singh Bhangi of Lahore had allowed his citizens to evacuate, as had Gulab Singh Bhangi of Amritsar, albeit reluctantly. At Atak, Shah Zaman split up his forces into seven divisions, each numbering about 12,000, and dispatched them in different directions across the Indus, hoping to cast the Sikhs into disarray. As the Afghans marched towards the Jhelum, Ranjit Singh ordered the evacuation of the fort of Rotas and took up a defensive position at Pind Dadan Khan, from where he was dislodged by an Afghan detachment and forced to cross the river. He received a letter from the Afghan king threatening him with dire consequences if he opposed the advance. The young chief replied that he was ready to fight, and as the Afghans continued to penetrate deeper into the Punjab, Ranjit Singh, Milka Singh, and Saib Singh Bhangi crossed the Chenab and started to collect their forces. Shah Zaman, after taking Rotas, commanded that the citizenry not be molested, forbidding his troops from plundering and commanding them only to acquire fodder and food that his army needed. He then sent an emissary to Lerna Singh, indicating his willingness to let him continue ruling in Lahore as his vassal. Fearing the wrath of his fellow Sikhs if he accepted, Lerna Singh politely declined and left Lahore with 100 men, leaving the city in charge of prominent Muslim citizens, Mia Chiraguddin Shah Sultanpuri, Mir Ghalib Shah, and Mia Muhammad Ashik. As Shah Zaman marched towards Lahore, the combined forces of the Sikh chiefs attacked his rear, recapturing the outpost that he had established and garrisoned with his soldiers as he had proceeded through the Punjab. In January 1797, Shah Zaman triumphantly entered Lahore, delighted to be back in the city that his father had ruled and then lost as a young man. The 26-year-old king, a tall black sheepskin cap on his head, astride a beautiful thoroughbred stallion, cut a fine figure as he entered the fort, the roads lined with the cheering citizens of Lahore, showering him with flowers. The next day, the Afghan king held a grand drbar at the Divane Khas, the small audience hall of the Mughal emperors at Lahore Fort, which was attended by his most important generals and chiefs. Shah Zaman was informed during the Darbar that the Sikh chiefs had assembled in Amritsar, accompanied by more than 5,000 warriors, and that trouble was likely to result. He immediately ordered letters to be sent to the Sikh chiefs, demanding their submission with an offer to guarantee their holdings. 
There was some good news too, in the form of a news writer named Gulam Ahmed Khan, who had arrived with a message from Raja Sahib Singh of Patiala, confirming his submission to Shah Zaman. Sahib Singh had done exactly what his grandfather Sardar Ala Singh and his father Raja Amar Singh had done. They had submitted to Amit Shah Durrani to secure confirmation of their rule. Now Sahib Singh had once again put his interests ahead of the Sikh nations and submitted to Amit Shah Durrani's grandson. A formal letter of submission was also received from Nawab Nizamuddin Khan of Kasur. A few days later, as he was conducting a general assembly in the Divane Aam, or large audience hall, Shah Zaman got word that Sardar Baghel Singh, Sardar Tara Singh Gabba, Sardar Sahib Singh Pangi, and Sardar Karam Singh Dulu were also making their way to Amritsar, presumably to aid Gulab Singh Pangi. Shah Zaman ordered a large detachment to march upon Amritsar. Shah Zaman did not know this, but a Sarbat Khalsa, a gathering of all Sikhs, had been called at the Sri Akal Takhat in Amritsar. It had been a time-honored tradition since the early days of the Dal Khalsa to convene the assembly whenever the Sikh nation was confronted with danger. Sikh chiefs would set their differences aside and assemble at the Akal Takhat where a vigorous discussion would ensue, followed by a consensus decision known as the Gurmata. The discussion of the Sarbat Khalsa was animated, with the older chiefs who had much experience fighting the fierce Afghans advocating caution, particularly Sardar Saib Singh Pangi, whose territories were always the first to be targeted during every invasion from the northwest. Just as consensus was building around the traditional approach of running and hiding in advance of the Afghan onslaught and returning to wage a nimble guerrilla campaign against them as they retreated, Sadakor got up to address the assembly. The astute and strategic Sadakor had perceived an opportunity to bring her young son-in-law center stage and she seized it. She persuaded him to fight, and several other chiefs to support him. On January 11, Shah Zaman dispatched a detachment of cavalry to Amritsar, where Ranjit Singh and his comrades met them with steel, scattering them and pursuing them, fuming at the impudence of the Sikhs, having just sent them another round of letters demanding their submission, Shah Zaman led his army to Amritsar, where Ranjit Singh awaited with 50,000 men. The battle raged unabated for six hours, with Sikh matchlocks offering a robust response to Afghan Jamburaks. Ranjit Singh ordered a charge and, quote, flinging away their turbans, their hair streaming loose, and their beards in their mouths, the Sikhs fearlessly charged the Afghans, punching a hole through the Afghan lines and forcing them to retreat in disarray. The Afghans were pursued and harried by the Sikhs all the way to Lahore, anticipating more attacks Ranjit Singh stationed 7,000 horse and 10,000 foot at the Akal Takhat. 
Chazamund returned to the safety of Lahore Fort and started summoning his allies, including Nawab Muzaffar Khan of Multan, Bahawal Khan of Bahawalpur, Mir Fateh Ali of Sindh, and Nizamuddin Khan of Kasur. The Rohilas, although hundreds of miles away from the Punjab, were starting to get excited. Bambu Khan, the brother of Ghulam Qadir, who had earlier sought refuge with the Sikhs, turned on them and collected a large force to march to the Punjab with the Rohila chief of Rampur and other allies. They crossed the Yamuna at Bariaghat and tried to proceed further north when their progress was checked by Jagubapu, the Maratha general at Saharanpur. Ranjit Singh was looking for allies too, but despite an urgent letter that he had sent to Raja Sahib Singh requesting assistance, no help was forthcoming from Patiala, Jind, Nabha or Kapurthala. The Sikhs were hopeful that the powerful Rajput kings of Jaipur and Jodhpur might come to their aid, but they were squarely focused on benefiting from the disarray at Maratha court and asserting their own independence. When Shah Zaman got word that a body of Sikhs had assembled around Chunia and Pakpattan, he deputed Nizamuddin Khan to deal with them because of his intimate knowledge of both the terrain and the Sikhs. The wily Nizamuddin, fearing Sikh retribution after Shah Zaman's eventual return to Kabul, pretended to search for the Sikhs, but avoided them, averting a confrontation. His eyes firmly on Delhi, Shah Zaman decided to march east, confident that the trans-Satluj Sikh chiefs would leave him alone once he exited their territories, and even more confident that Sahib Singh and the other Sikh-Satluj chiefs would submit to him. However, he was not destined to reach the Mughal capital, for he got word of yet another rebellion by his brother Mahmud in Herat. On January 30th, 1797, Shah Zaman crossed the Ravi and started his journey home. He stopped at Jhelum and appointed Ahmad Khan Shahanchibashi, the Kiladar or commander of the fort of Rotas, garrisoning it with 7,000 soldiers, 200 Jamburaks and four big guns. Ahmad Khan was tasked with administrating the Sindh Sagar Dwab, the territory between the Jhelum and the Indus River, and was given 200,000 rupees for expenses. Several subordinate chiefs were placed under his command to support his efforts. Shah Zaman's third invasion had ended with a whimper, and he returned to Kabul with nothing to show for his expedition in terms of either wealth or prestige. Ranjit Singh, on the other hand, was a name that was starting to become known across the Punjab. Raja Sansar Chand had been prospering as the fortunes of the Kanhiyas had been declining. After recapturing his ancestral fort at Kangra, he had gone from strength to strength, 
subjugating the other hill rajas whose kingdoms surrounded Kangra. Chamba, Mandi, Suket, and Nahan all paid tribute to him and his territories extended all the way to Jammu. His wealth had grown with his power and he had become a renowned patron of the arts, establishing 36 centers of painting and building multiple forts and palaces. Emboldened by the passing of Sadar Mahasingh and Sadar Jaisingh Kanhaiya, he was constantly seeking opportunities to expand his dominions into the foothills and plains as well. Shah Zaman's invasion had seemed to present a fabulous opportunity, and when the king's messengers had arrived at his court, warning him against coming to the aid of the Sikhs, he had submitted willingly, offering support to Shah Zaman. The Afghan king's hasty retreat robbed him of the opportunity to carve out any additional territories, but he decided to bide his time. The wealth of India was too great a lure, and he was sure that Shah Zaman would be back. The relatively small Afghan presence at Rohtas emboldened the Sikh chiefs and they started to make active plans to recover their lost territories. Milka Singh and Saib Singh Pangi intended to take back Gujarat and then Rawalpindi, while Ranjit Singh was eager to eject the Afghans from the fort at Rohtas. Their plans were unwittingly facilitated by Ahmed Khan Shahanchibashi, who proved to be a tyrant, destroying the farmers' crops and enslaving their young sons and daughters. The last straw was the abduction of a young Brahmin girl from the village of Haranpur, the atrocity inciting a general revolt. Bedi Ram Singh of Kotli Fakir Chand Bediyan, a brave warrior, became the standard bearer of the rebellion against the Kiladar of Rohtas, Gathering a small band around him, he went from village to village, bearing the Sikh scripture, the Guru Granth Sahib, on his head, exhorting the populace to rise against their cruel overlord. As Ram Singh converged upon Sialkot, where Ahmed Khan was encamped, other Sikh chiefs started joining his ranks with their men. The first engagement at Sialkot was inconclusive with losses on both sides. The Afghans moved their camp east to the bank of the Chenab at night and discovered that Jod Singh Ramgadiya, Jamal Singh Kanaya, Sardar Tara Singh Kaiba, Sardar Pag Singh Aluwalia, and Milkha Singh Pindiwalia and several others had arrived with their men as well. A second inconclusive battle was fought. The Afghans crossed the Chenab, and the main force under Ahmed Khan Shahanchibashi set up camp close to Gujarat. Ranjit Singh and Saib Singh Bhangi also joined the Sikh force, and a fierce battle was fought several miles to the east of Gujarat, in which both Ram Singh and Ahmed Khan Shahanchibashi were killed. The Afghans took flight and were pursued by the Sikhs, who chased them across the Jhelum. 
It was a spectacular victory for the Sikhs, who captured numerous camels, horses, and guns, and put more than 3,000 Afghans to the sword. Ahmad Khan Shahanchibashi's corpse was treated with contempt, and the Brahmin girl that he had abducted was freed. It was one of the first large, head-on confrontations between Afghans and Sikhs, in which the feared invaders from the north were defeated. Even though it was a triumph of the combined Sikh forces, the victory served to burnish the already growing reputation of the young Rajit Singh even further. The affairs of the Shukachekia missile were still largely in the hands of the triumvirate, consisting of Sardar Dal Singh, Raj Kaur, and Divan Lakhpatrai. However, as Ranjit Singh started coming into his own, he started chafing at their control and sought to take charge of the affairs of his own missile. He found a powerful ally in his highly ambitious mother-in-law, Sadakor, Divan Lakhpatrai was still in charge of day-to-day affairs, being paid 20 rupees per day, as his young master indulged himself in hunting and other sporting activities. He did not see eye-to-eye with Dalsing, who felt that his grand-nephew had ceded too much control to the Divan. After Ranjit Singh's marriage, Sadakor, who was squarely in control of her own Kanhaya missile, started getting involved in the affairs of the Shukarchekyas as well, much to Raj Kaur's chagrin. Sadakor did find an ally in Dalsing, and they started to intrigue against Divan Lakhpatrai. The other key player at Gujaramwala was Mr. Laikram, who was in charge of the management of the Shukarchekya household. The constant bickering and backbiting as his most important advisors jockeyed for position created a toxic environment, which Ranjit Singh deplored, and he started spending increasing amounts of time away from home. Raj Kaur's anxiety grew with each passing day as she saw her son rely increasingly on his mother-in-law's counsel. The defeat of Amitra Chahanchibashi was an opportunity for Ranjit Singh to regain control over the territories that the Afghans had dispossessed him of. There was a domestic matter to be dealt with, after which he intended to send Divan Lakhpatrai to reassert his control over the territories of the Singh Sagar Doab. Shah Zaman was dealing with his brother's rebellion when he got news of Ahmad Khan Shahanchibashi's death and the dissipation of the force that he had left behind at Rotas to secure the Singh Sagar Doab. His determination to return to the Punjab was reinforced by a steady stream of emissaries, all of whom petitioned him to cross the Indus again. Tipu Sultan of Mysore sent two of his agents, accompanied by 300 men, 
to deliver a herd of thoroughbred horses and several other expensive gifts. Tipu Sultan asked the Afghan king for 20,000 warriors, offering the fabulous sum of 30 million rupees in return. Agents of Raja Sampuran Singh of Jammu, Raja Sansarchand of Kangra, and Bambu Khan Rohilla appeared at his court as well, offering assistance if the king were to invade India again. The Muslim chiefs of Pind Dadan Khan, Rasulnagar, Jhang, and Kasur also sent emissaries reiterating their support for the next expedition. Wazir Ali, the son of Asaf the Nawab of Awadh, sent Sayyid Zain ul Abdin Khan and Mir Sadak Ali Khan to Kabul as well, asking for Shah Zaman's assistance in breaking the British hold on Awadh and expelling the foreigners. Shah Zaman was keen on returning to India, but he decided to verify that the petitions he had received were authentic and the offers of assistance sincere. In August 1797, as a prelude to his next invasion, he sent an ambassador, Ghulam Muhammad Khan, to India. Ghulam Muhammad Khan carried 14 letters from Shah Zaman addressed to various kings and chiefs, including the Nawab of Awadh and John Shore, the British Governor-General. While Shah Zaman was engaged in diplomacy in preparation for his next invasion, changes were afoot in Lahore. Sardar Lena Singh Bhangi, who had ruled Lahore as part of a triumvirate of Sikh chiefs for almost three decades, passed away and was succeeded by his son, Jath Singh. A second member of the triumvirate, Soba Singh, had also died and his place had been taken by his son, Mohar Singh. The third member of the old triumvirate, Sadar Gujar Singh Bhangi, had passed away several years earlier, leaving his son, Sahib Singh Bhangi, who was married to Ranjit Singh's aunt, in control of his possessions. A new triumvirate, consisting of three Bhangi chiefs, Sahib Singh, Jath Singh and Mohar Singh, was now in command of the capital of Punjab. Sadakor, emboldened by the firm alliance the Kanhayas now had with the Shukarchakyas, decided to move against her old nemesis, Sardar Jasa Singh Ramgadiya. Ranjit Singh was persuaded by his beautiful new bride to take the field against the man who was partly responsible for her father's death. Sadakor put together a powerful coalition that included her son-in-law, Sardar Tara Singh Gebba, Sardar Bhag Singh Aluwalia, Sardar Khushal Singh Faisalpuriya, and Sardar Bhag Singh Haluwalia, and decided to march upon the Ramgadiyas. The aging Sardar Jassa Singh, still a force to be reckoned with, was entrenched at his fort at Miani on the bank of the river Bias, close to his headquarters at Sri Hargobindpur. Ranjit Singh halted in Lahore on his way to join the campaign against the Ramgadiyas, where he was lavishly entertained by Chath Singh and Mohar Singh. Several receptions were organized in his honor, and he attended a religious play titled Gopi Chand, all the while taking in the opulence of the capital of the Punjab and quietly studying its defenses. One day the city will be mine, he told himself, 
even as he enjoyed the hospitality of the Bhangi chiefs. When Sardar Jasa Singh Ramgadiya got wind of the imminent trouble, he started casting about for allies who might be able to save him from Sadakor's wrath. He decided to send an agent to Sardar Saib Singh Bedi, a powerful chief whose territories lay in Una and who happened to be at Amritsar at the time. Saib Singh Bedi, 10th in line from Guru Nanak, had become by then a highly respected elder statesman who was often called upon to mediate in conflicts between Sikh chiefs. Ranjit Singh, accompanied by Sardar Dal Singh and Jodh Singh, also met with Saib Singh Bedi in Amritsar. We are all Sikhs of Guru Nanak and Guru Gobind Singh, and here we are baying for each other's blood. Why don't you turn your attention to the Pathans instead, who continue to oppress their subjects in Kasur, in Multan, in Peshawar? I will bring about a reconciliation between the Kanayas and the Ramgadiyas if you ask your armies to stand down, said Sahib Singh Bedi. Ranjit Singh listened to the elder respectfully and promised to take his counsel to his mother-in-law. Sadakor regarded her son-in-law carefully and spoke. Sardar Saiv Singh Bedi is a wise man, and I respect him. He is also a descendant of Guru Nanak Sahibs, which makes him doubly worthy of our respect. However, he does not understand the situation and surely does not understand the pain that Jasa Singh Ramgadiya has caused us. I will accept his offer to mediate and bring about a reconciliation. However, it cannot happen yet. It will happen after Jasa Singh Ramgadiya's son, Jodh Singh, is slain, and after his wife is widowed, just as I was widowed. The siege will continue. The combined forces converged upon Miani, but the doughty Ramgadiya chief dug in and defied the besiegers. The siege dragged on, and when the defeat of Jasa Singh Ramgadiya seemed imminent, he had an unexpected stroke of good fortune. The besieging force was camped on the dry bed of the Bias, downriver from the fort at Miani. Heavy rains in the hills caused a flash flood, and the besiegers lost their camp and their guns. Bitterly cursing her fate, Sadakor called off the siege, and the coalition dispersed. While the Shukarchakyas, the Bhangis, the Kanayas, and the Ramgadiyas had become the most powerful of the trans-Satlaj missiles, there was a fifth missile of note, the Nakais. The missile derived its name from the word Naka, which meant gateway, as they occupied the territory between the Ravi and the Satluj, southwest of Lahore, through which passed the road that connected Multan, Bahawalpur, and Sindh to Lahore and Delhi. The missile had been formed by Sardar Hira Singh Nakai, who hailed from the village of Bharawal. He commanded a force of 3,000 horsemen and managed to seize a large swath of territory, becoming one of the most powerful Sikh chiefs of his time. Hira Singh was killed in a battle against Sheikh Subhan Chishti, who presided over the Sufi shrine at Pakpatan, 
whose wholehearted support for the slaughter of cows had deeply offended the area's Hindus and Sikhs. Hira Singh had a son named Dal Singh, who was an infant at the time of his father's death. Hence, stewardship of the missile passed into the hands of Hira Singh's nephew Nahar Singh, who also perished within a year, leaving his brother Ran Singh in charge. Ran Singh was a brave warrior and a capable leader, and under him the missile reached the zenith of its power and glory. The other prominent Nakai chief and Ran Singh's contemporary was Kamar Singh, whose headquarters were at Sayyidwala. Ran Singh and Kamar Singh were allies, but the latter nurtured ambitions to wrest control of the missile, and he forged a matrimonial alliance between his daughter and Dal Singh, the son of the late Hira Singh Nakai. In the ensuing conflict, Kamar Singh was killed, and his son-in-law Dal Singh took over his territories as the nominal overlord, with Kamar Singh's nephew Vazir Singh wielding real power in his name. Ran Singh passed away in 1781 after several skirmishes with the branch of the Nakais led by Vazir Singh. Ran Singh was succeeded by his oldest son Bhagwan Singh, who was nowhere near as capable as his father. His wife, Sardarni Karamkor, recognizing that her branch of the Nakai missile was declining, decided to make a strategic matrimonial alliance with the Shukarchakyas, for at that time, Sardar Mahasingh's star had been in the ascendant. She had sent the Nakai minister Divan Tekchand to Gujranwala with a proposal to betroth her daughter Rajkor to the young Ranjit Singh. Mahasingh, not at all averse to an alliance with the Nakais, had accepted the proposal. Vazir Singh was furious when he learned of the alliance, and he did his utmost to sabotage it. First, he reached out to Karamkor and asked her to break off the match, citing the superiority of the late Ran Singh's bloodline over Ma Singh's. The wily Karamkor refused, prompting Vazir Singh to seek an alliance of his own with Maha Singh, albeit one of a military nature. He sent his agent, Sangatraya, to Gujaramwala with an offer of 1,000 horse that Maha Singh could rely upon at any time. Much pleased, Maha Singh sent one of his Brahmin servants, Nanihal, to Sayyadwala to serve as his agent. When Maha Singh had a falling out with Sadar Jaising Kanhiya, Vazir Singh came to his aid and was richly rewarded for his support. When a dispute broke out again between Bhagwan Singh and Vazir Singh, Maha Singh interceded, adopting an air of neutrality as he had alliances with both branches of the Nakais and managing to bring about a reconciliation of sorts. After Bhagwan Singh died in battle, he was succeeded by his brother Gyan Singh, who became the new head of the Nakai missile. His position was further strengthened when Dal Singh Nakai, who had been chafing at the control that Vazir Singh exercised over his branch of the Nakai missile, had him murdered as he slept. By 1798, Ranjit Singh's mother, Raj Kaur, had more or less been sidelined by Sadakor in partnership with Sardar Dal Singh of Akalgarh. 
Her son, who was now hailed as a hero all over the Punjab, largely tended to ignore her counsel, causing her great anguish. As her antipathy increased, she grew more determined to counter the influence of his son's mother-in-law, with whom she had always had a rocky relationship since the time when both of them had been young brides. Years had passed since the betrothal between Ranjit Singh and Rajkor Nakai. He was now a married man with a beautiful bride from one of the greatest houses of the Punjab. Rajkor was unsure how her son would respond to her suggestion that he marry again. She need not have worried, for she found Ranjit Singh, his ambitions already kindled by Sadakor and fueled by his early success, to be enthusiastic about cementing an alliance with the powerful Nakais. There was another reason for his willingness. The beautiful and imperious Mehtabkor, unable to forget the role that her husband's late father had played in the ruin of her clan, was cold and distant towards him. The prospect of a second wife and a more harmonious relationship appealed to the young man, and over the objections of Sadakor, who was bitterly opposed to his second marriage, he agreed. A grand wedding procession set out from Gujranwala to the Nakai stronghold with Divan Lakhpatrai, Sardar Dal Singh, and all the prominent members of the Shukarchakia clan in attendance, and Ranjit Singh was married to Rajkor Nakai. As she shared a name with her mother-in-law, she would be known as Datar Kaur after her marriage. Sada Kaur, who had been gnashing her teeth at the prospect of her daughter, the Shukachakya queen, now having a rival, could do nothing to stop the marriage. But she was not one to admit defeat easily. After the marriage, Divan Lakhpatrai was dispatched at the head of a considerable force to recover Ranjit Singh's territories in the Singh Sagar Dwab. After a successful campaign, the Divan decided to stop at the ancient Hindu temple at Katasrai to pay his respects before returning to Gujaramala with the tribute that he had collected. There he was accosted by a Muslim tribesman who asked for an audience which the Divan granted. As they were in conversation, the tribesman pulled out a dagger and struck the divan on his face, killing him instantly. The divan's guards fell upon the assassin and slashed him to pieces. The body of the divan was washed in the holy water of Katasraj and cremated. Since the assassin was dead, there was no way of knowing what his motivation might have been. However, rumors started to fly that the assassination had been ordered by Dal Singh and Sadakor in order to rid Ranjit Singh of his powerful divan. Mr. Laikram, wondering if he was going to be the next target, threw himself at Sadakor's mercy. She coolly advised him to flee, and when he agreed, she gave him a purse and told him to go to the holy Hindu city of Haridwar and never return if he valued his life. Thus, the Sadakor-Dalsing alliance 
now became paramount in the affairs of the Shukachakya missile after the removal of Ranjit Singh's most powerful and efficient advisers. Rajkor had pulled off a coup with Ranjit Singh's second marriage. However, having heavily relied on Divan Lakhpatrai and Mr. Laikram in the past, she started to feel increasingly insecure again as she found herself with no ally in the Shukarchakya court. Media, the creators of the Story of the Six podcast and the Gurmat Sangeet podcast. The podcast features original music by Indian classical guitar maestro Ritom Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is provided by Swarnava Ghosh. The podcast is made possible by the Chardikala Foundation. Ishpreet Singh and Manpreet Kaur and the Sawney Family Foundation. It is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, The Knight of the Restless Spirits, The Story of the Six, and Kultar's Mine. In the next episode, Shah Zaman returns to the Punjab, determined to teach the Six a lesson. Ranjit Singh challenges him openly, and then ends up helping him as he retreats. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Sunur Chopra.
Yeah.